0: As we're talking about the prophet Amos, remember this is a this is an untrained, you know, unofficial, ordinary man. God called out of the out of the fields to be his mouthpiece to a wayward nation. He's from Judah, but yet he's called to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, this is about 760 BC, so, we're talking about events that are taking place a long time ago and yet the, uh, the Word of God is so timely as we think about the things that Amos has to say in our current situation. Now tonight the question that God is going to be asking us is this. What have you done with what I have given you? So remember, what happened is in the first chapter, two weeks ago, I talked about how God began by laying out his judgment against all the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And then last week, Pastor Matt turned the corner as God began to focus in on his own people and the judgment that they were facing. And so you can almost sense that in the first chapter as God's laying out his grievances with all these surrounding pagan nations that uh, the people of Israel are sort of just applauding this. Like, yeah, get them. You know, they're terrible. You should do this. You know, they're cheering. And then all of a sudden it changes and they realize that God is now speaking to them. And, you know, the whole... You can just sense and feel the weight of what God says and just imagine uh, the feelings that it brought upon the people so the first thing I want us to see is our opportunity our opportunity so the what God does in chapter 3 is he begins by illustrating the opportunity that he's given his people to bring him glory to operate in his uh, will to be successful in Uh, the things in which he's called them to. Look at how the chapter begins. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So what God does is he goes all the way back to the beginning and he, he wants to establish with them who they are and how they got to be who they are and that there is a direct correlation between God's frustration with His people and the opportunities that God has given them. You can't separate those two things. Okay? And so even in this room tonight, there's a vast array of, maybe we could say, for the sake of illustration, we could say, here we all are, and we're all God's people. But within the context of God's people, there's a vast array of differences of opportunities that God has given. Some of you have only been walking with the Lord for a short period of time. And so the opportunities that God's given you are very minimal. Others are in the opposite situation. And the way that God responds to disobedience in our life is connected to the degree or level of opportunity that God has made available to us in our life. I have said multiple times to people, multiple times, and they, and they always look at me like I'm crazy. I say, if you have no intention of obeying God, you should never come back to this church again. There are so many churches you could go to that would be so much more healthy for you. Because you're going to come and sit under an avalanche of the Word of God that you are going to be accountable for. And so, this is not the place to be fooling around. It's just not. So, you know, we are a people who strive to take seriously the Word of God. And you, you feel that when you invite people to come visit here. You feel the weight of that, don't you? Yeah, sure you do. I know. I do. And, and here's the thing. You know, we, we have a tendency to maybe wish that, you know, they would come and visit. And they would say, oh, you know, your pastor's so funny. He cracked us up. Or, you know, was great. Or how did he pack all that into 25 minutes which that never happened but you know we could imagine but here's the thing that's not who we are that's not what we're about and so the truth of the matter is is that uh, if you're going to stick here it's going to be because the Holy Spirit's working that's the only way and that's I think the biblical model that we don't we don't want we don't want people to to, uh, to come and become part of our family for any other reason but that the God of the universe is drawing them to himself and that they have a hunger and a thirst to know him in a deeper, more intimate way. Right? So, I mean, the opportunity, we have to, you have to understand this. So, here's what God does. He, he illustrates how this all began. He takes them back to 400 years of captivity in, in Egypt. Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and who have hurt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey a place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Sivites, Jebusites. And now behold, the city, or the cry of the people of Israel, has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And so God, multiple times through the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, expresses His heart for His people and that He understands and hears His people. And so He frees them. And in doing so, What he says in the very opening line of chapter 3 is that God not only brought freedom, he formed a family. You see that? O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You see, these are a group of people that that are bonded together by more than nationality. They're a family. They're bonded together through relationship with one another, through relationship with God. Look at verse 2. You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So he's establishing from the beginning. This is so different from what he said to the nations in the first chapter. He didn't say anything like this. He just laid it out. And so the principle here is that privilege has a price. It has a price. And you know why that is? Is because privilege costs a great price. And because of the great expense at which we are given privilege we then have responsibility in our privilege luke chapter 12 jesus says for everyone to whom much is given we've heard this multiple times it goes right along with everything that god's speaking to us out of first corinthians from him much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more Now what Pastor Matt said last week on the handout was just because God has chosen you doesn't mean you're exempt from all of His standards. Remember that conversation from last week? The fact that we've been chosen doesn't negate our responsibility to the standards of God. But what will appear in chapter 3 is that that's exactly the mindset of the people of God and that is Oftentimes the mindset of what we see in contemporary Christianity today. So this people that is now a family, these weren't people that were, they weren't the most deserving people on the face of the earth. They weren't the people who had the greatest potential. They weren't the people who had done anything to earn God's favor. They, they hadn't distinguished themselves in any way. None of those things were true. They were the least likely people for God to choose and yet they're the people that God In fact, chose to be his children. Now, when he lays out the fact that he's going to punish them because of their iniquities, when it comes to God's people, we need to understand the differentiation here that God's punishment is not to destroy, but to discipline. It's not to destroy, but to discipline. So he has a father's motivation in the disciplining of his children. And there's a, there's a reason to uh, what God does. He, he does everything that he does intentionally and for a purpose. He doesn't do anything for no reason. God is utterly and completely intentional in everything that he does. And so when it comes to punishment, we need to understand that it this discipline leads to maturity and maturity leads to mission. Because if you think about it very simply, the mission to which God has called us to is going to require maturity. And so God, obviously, when He calls us to mission, is going to set forth a, a systematic uh, sequence of events that's going to that's going to discipline us into maturity so that we'll be able to accomplish the mission. You see, God never calls us to something we're unable to accomplish. He doesn't call us to something we're not equipped to do. He, he takes responsibility for the equipping of the things He calls us to. But He doesn't override our free will to participate to give our wholehearted devotion to he doesn't he won't force that but here's what happens so in what I just said do you see what happens what automatically happens when you enter into a relationship with God is amidst all these glorious things that change that we are now we've gone from utterly guilty to now utterly forgiven that we've been conveyed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That we, our citizenship is in heaven. That we're now, uh, we're we're declared right with God forevermore. All these amazing things happen, but at the same time, all that's happening, God also takes full responsibility for the mission that He's called us to. And and again, that is something that sort of changes as time goes on. In other words. As we become more mature, or as we have been exposed to greater opportunity, then God's call on our life is to do more. So, you're not what what God was calling you to do in a general sense was the same the day you got saved as it is today if you've been a Christian for 30 years. But the degree to which you can participate has drastically changed, drastically and and this bewilders me how is the church filled with people that don't understand this simple concept that somehow they still have the same mentality about their participation in the mission of God today as they did 20 years ago that's absurd that, would, that right there, if it were true, which it never is, but if it were, it would negate the goodness of God as a father. That would be like me uh, expecting my teenage son not to, you know, poop in his pants. You understand? Like, come on, I got bigger, I got bigger goals for you at this point in your life than that. We've moved on from that. We don't stay stagnant. This is a, 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 a continually moving relationship. We're growing. We're following God. We're a disciple. A disciple is an ongoing process. And so discipline leads to maturity and maturity to mission. Now, back to this idea that God brings forth of the the children of Israel being in, enslaved in captivity. Now if we go back to that and we think about that for a second now, now, what was their response to deliverance? Because what God said was, he starts out by pointing out that I delivered you as a family, right? In verse one. Then in the second verse, he says, "Now you are the family that I've known only amongst all the families of the nation. And so what was their response to deliverance? And it was murmuring and complaining. So God delivers them from captivity and then what we have is Moses leading them through the wilderness and it's this never-ending cycle of you know, them murmuring and complaining and whining and fussing and The reason Moses is such a hero to me personally is simply because he lasted as long as he did before he finally smacked the rock two times. Because when I read the book of Exodus, I'm like, I would have took the staff and killed 150 people. I mean, I don't know how he did it. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, that poor guy just took a beating day after day after day. And so, you know, he's... So, this murmuring and complaining, now, this is why I point this out because the response to deliverance reveals the belief that what God has entrusted to us is not good. In other words, if you, the, the, the issue is not the murmuring and complaining, the issue is what is the murmuring and complaining pointing us to? What is it, what is it telling us is going on? It's telling us, see, that where there's murmuring and complaining, there must be dissatisfaction. That's an expression of dissatisfaction. And so the dissatisfaction is, is rooted in this idea that either A, they deserve something better, B, they had something better. But it, it, no matter how you slice it, it comes back to that whatever God did wasn't as good as what he could have done or what he should have done, right? It just reveals that. Crystal clear. And the danger whenever we interact or intersect with our opportunity, when we start to think about what is what opportunity, where am I in opportunity in the kingdom of God? At this current stage of your Christian growth, at this current moment in your progression of sanctification... Where are you not in what you're doing currently? Where are you with regard to opportunity? How has God enlarged your territory, if you will, regardless of whether you've explored it or entered into it or paid attention to it or ignored it. It doesn't change that reality. And you see, either something, one of these two extremes has to be true. Either there's something dreadfully wrong and you're not growing, which means, what does it mean when something doesn't grow? It's dead. So if you're growing, then by default, so is your opportunity. So is your opportunity. So, for example, why do you think the Bible? I mean, in other words, I think this makes perfect sense to us. You, probably none of you have ever wondered this. You know, why, why does the Bible, whenever it talks about leadership in the church, always give the warning that you should not put a novice in a position of authority? Like, that makes sense. I I don't think any of you have thought, now, why is that there? Right? For the same reason why you don't put your six-year-old, you know, in charge of your family finances. Same reason. But have you ever considered the fact that the reason that that's there is also implicit of the fact that opportunity has not grown to that point, that it's a... There's a sliding scale. In other words, if because why if, if, if it wasn't, the way most Christians live and, uh, and re-interact with God is that once you're saved, everything's complete and good. But yet God says, no, here's a saved person who's still new and who should not be leading things, which is a clear indication that there is a a sanctification process that goes on in our lives. And as we grow in Christ, opportunity grows. And so when I ask people to do things, I ask people based on the thing that I'm asking them. I don't ask people just based on random availability or just pull a name out of a hat. I ask people that I've observed in them the capacity to accomplish the task in which I'm asking them to do. And so some of those are very simple and and almost anyone can do it. And other ones are more difficult. And so therefore it's, it's based on what I've observed in your life. So you need to be thinking about this. Because remember... Just because God's chosen you, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from His standards. So what's the indication? That you, just like the people of Israel, God hasn't changed. He's the same God. You and me, just like the children of Israel in Amos' time, will give account according to the opportunity that we've been given. You understand? Yes. Yes. And so, you see, to me, if, if what I just said makes you feel like, like if your response to that is, like you would never admit this, but in, in, your, in the quietness of your own head, you say to yourself, man, I should go to church somewhere else. My response to that is, is that you're probably not saved. Because how could a saved person not desire more interaction with the one who saved them? How could a saved person filled with the Holy Spirit not desire more of what God has for them? How is that possible? I don't think it is. And so therefore, it sort of makes sense as to why we do the things that we do. Because it... It's a, it's a great safeguard against making sure we don't have a church full of lost people. It's very, very hard to go to church here lost. Very hard. And it should be. And hopefully it will always be. So, now we look at our accountability. So we go from opportunity to accountability. Accountability. So now what Amos does is something that prophets oftentimes do. And the reason that they do this is because no one wants to hear what they're saying. Right? No one. And so what do you do when you have to say something and you know that the people you have to say it to don't want to hear it? Well, you instinctively, you know, sort of ease the blow a little bit. You you don't just come out of the gate with it maybe you before you have a difficult conversation with somebody maybe you talk about the weather for a minute or bring up some you know sports for a minute or this or that or the other or maybe if you've known them for a long time you talk about some happy memory in the past before you bomb them with the thing you got to bring up to them right well what the prophets oftentimes do you you will see Jeremiah do this Isaiah do this and the minor prophets are great at doing this they'll they'll Put a bring a riddle into it. You know, it'll get people's mind you know, focused on the right thing but through a, in a different way. And so he says in verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when they have no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does the snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And so what he does is he just starts asking these very obvious, simple questions using uh, uh, obvious experience of life and social interaction the animal kingdom, all as illustrations. And so it's like, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Well, no. Does a lion roar or doesn't have any prey? No. 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 Is a trumpet blown in the city? You know, that's the warning trumpet, the danger trumpet. Like the, the, if you're in, you know, Oklahoma and all of a sudden the sirens go off, you don't go, hey, what's that sound? You take off running, you know, to get in the bunker. What's the same thing? And then he bombs them at the end and says, you know, drops this little sort of exclamation point. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Oh, you have to think about that for a minute. Well, we wish we could say that that wasn't the case. And we we know that it's not our place to start doling out, uh, you know, this, this truth in the Scripture is given to us in a multitude of different ways and places. But nowhere does it give us license to start uh, doing what there's always some, you know, be nice, Tony. There's always some person who, uh, you know, wants to get on TV and proclaim what God is doing is if they have no authority to speak on behalf of God. None. Zippo. So don't start telling everybody that this has happened because of judgment against this or that particular thing or whatever it is because they don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that God is sovereign and we do know that nothing happens apart from His sovereign hand and power. And so... We don't know exactly why, but we know that God has allowed it. We could say that, at least, right? We know that. And so, what is the point of this series of riddles? There's no cause without effect. That's what Amos is saying. There's no cause without effect. In other words, we might say in our vernacular today, where there's smoke, there's... Right. It's just a simple cause and effect statement. And what he's driving at is the simple reality that sin always has consequences. Always. There's no... Scenario where sin doesn't have consequences. Every sin, no matter how big or small, creates a debt that must be paid because of the holiness of the one that the sin is against. It's just basic theological biblical understanding. And so, here's what we are able to discern up until this point about. What's going on? Remember that uh, what we talked about last week, that Jeroboam is the king and that they're having this wild economic success. And everyone is prospering. And business is booming. And economy is great. And uh, boy, the, the the poll numbers for the king are at an all-time high. And everybody loves him because he's uh, he's a business wizard he's a financial wizard and he he has brought peace to the nation and everybody's making money and unemployment is at a 30 year low and earnings are at an all time high and the nasdaq is about to explode and people just man they are just eating it up they love it it's fantastic and even this idea that sin has no judgment it's not really a problem for the israelites because they, they would agree wholeheartedly that all sin has judgment. Except for one exclusion. And that is, but we are God's people. See, we're different. We're special. We, we, we are under this exemption clause. We exist in a special category that's different from everyone else. Now, I could point out a hundred ways that the church of our day has the same mentality based on their behavior, just like the people of this time. I mean, this idea that, well, we're God's special people. And we've been chosen out of all other people. And so because of that, we are objects of His favor and His blessing. And so what they're doing is they're, they're doing what we oftentimes do and we take theological apples and theological oranges and we make fruit salad out of them. We take two different things that do not belong together and we jumble them all up together. And we take the, the covenant of God and our responsibility as free-willed autonomous image bearers And see, these are two things that run parallel to each other. They don't connect with each other. God makes a covenant, and He makes it, He means it, and He keeps it. We are the objects of His covenant, but then we also are autonomous, free-willed image-bearers. And you can't make fruit salad out of those two things. you got to understand that this, what's going on over here is one thing, and what's going on over here is another thing, and they're two different things. And this over here will never change. But this over here changes all the time. This over here is dependent upon where this train track leads depends on your faithfulness to God. You need to understand that. That you see, at the moment of salvation... Here's here's how this works. This is an apple. At the moment of salvation, every person, regardless of who they are, regardless of background, regardless of mental capacity, regardless of how they grew up, regardless of their socioeconomic standing, every person at the moment of salvation has unlimited potential in God unlimited potential you can go as far as high as wide as deep as you your heart desire you there is nothing holding you back that's an apple an orange is is that how far you go depends on what you do see you can be saved and be a very slothful undisciplined lazy Saved person. And though you possess the same amount of the Holy Spirit as the zealous on fire person who's pursuing God, do you think you're going to grow at the same rate? Of course you're not. Of course you're not. Your sanctification is utterly dependent upon your participation. That would, I mean, to, to disagree with that is so absurd. It would be like saying that two people are going to lose the same amount of weight because they both got on the same diet. One is going to actually follow the diet, and the other one's just going to eat ding dongs and Cheetos all the time. And saying, nope, but they're on the same diet, so they're going to do, there's going to be the same result because it's the same diet. And, I mean, that's moronic. There's no difference. What you spiritually eat is going to drastically impact your sanctification. If you sit at home watching TV all day while your brother or sister in Christ is redeeming the time because the days are evil, you think you're going to grow the same as them? I mean, no way. If you sit here... While the Word of God's being preached and you're daydreaming about 14 other things and you're sitting next to somebody who's focused in and paying attention and receiving the things God has to say, you think you're going to grow the same? No way. No way. Not even close. So this this reality about how God views opportunity, opportunity, responsibility, all of these things is all over the Scripture. Uh, Notice what uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. It's some of the craziest words in the New Testament. He says, In you, Capernaum, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which had been done in you were done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, what is, who, where, Capernaum, what is that? That is the home base of Jesus in the New Testament. That's home base. That's where Jesus was was an everyday fixture. That's where uh, he spent a, a vast amount of his time. You know, not everybody had the same exposure to Jesus. You know who had a whole bunch of it? Capernaum. And you know what you're never going to find in the Bible? There's not one place where the people in Capernaum, not one place where they tried to stone Jesus, where they threw him out, where they rejected him, where they were rude to him, where they nowhere. They were very cordial, accommodating. And God says about these. Cordial, accommodating people that had a whole bunch of exposure to Jesus. He said, if Sodom would have had the opportunity that you had, it would still remain to this day. Sodom. but I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You want to just think about that for a minute? You think that you can just... uh, Be lukewarm. It's just going to be okay. Jesus said, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum, who was just, you just sort of, you had Jesus all around you and you just didn't pay attention to it. You weren't against it. You just didn't care. It didn't bother you. My goodness. I mean, just think about the simple fact that here we are. We have the privilege of reading the book of Amos. Like we have this privilege. Like we get to study the book of Amos. And What a great privilege that is. And we we realize that it results in a greater responsibility to become more sensitive to the things that God's doing around us. Because here's what we know so far. At the end of the riddle, God says, He says, now... Is there calamity or is there disaster that comes to a city unless the Lord has done it? So let's just take that one thing. Just that truth right there. So here we are in the midst of calamity, right? There's a lot of calamity going on in our culture right now. And so we get to study the book of Amos. And so therefore, by default, what a blessing it is. And we're encouraged by that. And we receive that with joy. But we should understand that just thus far what we've said. If, if God comes back right now and I don't even get to finish this sermon. You don't, you're not responsible for everything else that's coming. But here's what you're responsible for so far. You have a responsibility to be more sensitive to what's wrong in the world now than you did when you came in here tonight you have a responsibility you see you have a responsibility to understand and to not act like a goofball you, you have to understand that we're in the midst of a pandemic you don't know what's going on so please for the love of God don't give us your opinion because you don't know anything But you know what you do know? You do know that God's doing something, right? Uh Uh-huh. You know that. So what does that mean? So what are you going to do about that? So now, are you going to say that based on the Word of God, I now understand that what we're going through, God has allowed that He's doing something and just go, well, I don't know what it is, so I don't care, so I'm not going to think about it, I'm just going to... See, there's responsibility in that, that we got to be more sensitive to what God's doing. And so look, I don't know exactly what God's doing, but I know God. So what do I know that God would be calling me to do in the midst of something He's doing? It's not rocket science. Is there any possible way that God's not calling every person that knows him as Lord and Savior in the midst of a pandemic to exhibit more of him is it possible that that's not true that is an impossibility so what in the heck is going on we need to be acting like Christ because Christ is doing something and so, I mean, you, this is like basic one-on-one. If God's doing something, you know what you know? You know, number one, it's about people. Because God always is about people. So you know that. Okay? Now what? You know that it's about loving people. Because God doesn't do things that are bad. He does things that are good. And so he whatever he's doing is somehow for our good. We don't need to know all the details. We don't need we our opinions aren't going to help anything. But if we act like the character and the nature of the God that we know, who we know because scripture says is in the midst of intentionally allowing something to happen, then my goodness. I mean, how hard is that? It's so simple. I mean, the darker the world gets, the greater opportunity for light. I mean, we, if we literally listen to what we whine and complain about and say all the time, it, you would think that really what we want is a, a world filled with bright lightness. As if that's ever going to happen. Is that in the Bible? No. And if it were, in the, if it were to happen tomorrow, we'd be in big trouble. Because most of the commands in the New Testament would be impossible for us to obey. That's never going to happen. The moment the world out there is filled with bright lightness, there won't be any need to obey anything else because it will all be fulfilled. So in the meantime, don't you think what lights would be doing is going. How can I get into the darkest room and shine the brightest possible light? It's so simple. So simple. And here's the thing: God's willingness is so evidenced in His warnings. You, do you ever wonder this? Like, cause I wonder this all the time. Like. God warns and He warns and He warns. You know when you go, I mean, do you always warn your kids? I don't. I'm just going to tell you straight. Because there's a lot of times, there's no warning necessary. What am I warning? I'm not warning. We've been over this 10,000 times. I don't always warn. Sometimes it's just a hammer. Look at, look at God. Look at verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. You see that? that? Isn't that an amazing statement right there? Because does, God doesn't owe us that. That is so. That is such the... Just the unmerited favor of God. Imagine. None of us could ever possibly ascribe to live up to that standard. And yet God just declares it about Himself as if it's a foregone conclusion. He never does anything without warning. He never does anything without grace. He never does anything without mercy. He's never made anything that didn't contain the ingredients of grace and mercy and warning. So verse 8, the lion has roared, so who will fear? You know, he's saying, how ridiculous would it be for you to hear a lion roar and not fear? You know, I'm always talking about how I love watching, uh, you know, because let's face it, I mean, what can you watch today? I can tell you what I like to watch. I like to watch uh, nature stuff, and uh, I like to watch lions. Especially when they're devouring hyenas. They're not, because hyenas aren't really my favorite thing. But I like it when hyenas pick a fight with a lion. I like it. And it's always this what were you thinking? Like, on what level did you look at that lion and think, wow, I think today we can take him? Man. I love that. The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. So he's pointing out all the uh, iniquities of the people and their places of false worship and their activities that are unpleasing to him. And then in verse 10, he says, they... Do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Hmm. So he's just simply declaring, hey, here's who you are, here's your character illustrated by your behavior. And the reality is that the world is only going to take sin and God's judgment seriously if they see us taking sin and God's judgment seriously. I mean, that goes without saying. Listen, if the people who profess to follow the God of the Bible don't take sin and His judgment seriously, then why in the world would anybody else? That doesn't even make any sense. And when will what's most prevalent about what we believe about God be made evident in our lives? Because, you know, every day, Monday through Friday, and day in and day out at different seasons of our life are not all equal. When will the truth about what we believe to be true about God be made most evident in our lives in suffering and trial. The darker the days, the harder the times, the more difficult the circumstances, the more obvious what a person truly believes becomes. Pain squeezes out what's true about us. And so the, the point is, is that, look, all of these things are going on. Remember, I told you in the very first couple of sentences when we started this series that the churches were packed. And the worship was loud. And everybody was there. And they were involved. And nobody in Israel thinks anything's wrong. They think it's the glory days. They think it's amazing. We're going to find out in the weeks to come. That, I mean, they were all doing all the right things. They were going through all the right motions. I mean, it's not like they stopped coming to church. It's not like they stopped worshiping. It's not like they stopped Sacrificing, no, they were doing all the religious activities. They thought everything was great, and so God says, "Now here is what you're, you've been doing, and now I'm about to squeeze, and we're going to find out what's really inside." Here's the principle. The universal principle is if we don't heed the word of God, it's only a matter of time before we'll no longer hear the word of God. Right? Now, Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says this Behold, the day's coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Look, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, what's the principle for those of you that have been going to church here for some time? Until you clean your room, nothing else is coming, right? You see, when God says, clean your room, and then you do other things, you know, you wash the windows, you vacuum the carpets downstairs, you paint the outside of the house, you re-shingle the roof, you do... And, and you keep going, God, look, I reshingled the roof. What do you want me to do next? Crickets. He's waiting for you to do what He asks you to do. Until you clean your room, we're not going to have any further conversation. Now, because everything He does is is infused with grace and mercy. and So what He'll do is, oftentimes He'll tell you over and over and over to clean your room, won't He? Yes. And He'll tell you and He'll tell you and then finally zip. I mean, I can't tell you. I've I, Over the years, I've had people come and, and sit down and, and just start, you know, telling me about their spiritual trials that they're going through and the things that are going on in their life. And, you know, just and, and they're just in a dry and a thirsty land. And I immediately go on an excavation of what's going on in their life. Like, what, what is it that God's asked you to do that you've been unwilling to do? that's caused this drought to come upon you. Because there are people sitting on the left of you and the right of you and in front of you and behind you that are just drinking from the fountain of God and you're not hearing anything. Now, what's the problem? And then we discern what the problem is because they always know. And then I say, okay, let's, let's do this. Whatever this is, we need to deal with this. We need to have this conversation. Like you've allowed this to go on too long with your husband. It's time to have a conversation about it or with your adult children or whatever the case may be. It could be any all sorts of things or at your job or whatever it is. And we're going to have this conversation and you're going to do this. You're going to find. Sometimes it's it's pride. It's baptism. It's, it's all kinds of things. And then a week or two later, they come back and they're like, it's unbelievable. It's like, it's it's like they they'll say it's like I got saved all over again, and I'm like, Amen. You see, oh you just had to clean your room, and and they knew that they just needed someone to, they just but and sometimes I understand sometimes these are things that are, you know, and and you've built up in your mind all these reasons why if you do this all these things that are going to happen and you're scared to death of it and all the you know and so you just you just need somebody to just give you a little nudge and then you follow through and then God just turns the spigot on because he loves you but here's the thing he will not continue to speak to someone who has no intention of obeying that would just make him an unwise father wouldn't it now now that's true, and so is the fact that God's patience is not infinite or indefinite. You know, that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his followers, he says, well, you don't give dogs what's holy. Don't cast your pearls before swine. He's talking about the Word of God. And you would think to yourself, "No, wait a minute, What? why is... Why does Jesus say that? He's saying, look, you you have a limited amount of time in this life. You have a limited amount of words to speak. You have a a limited amount of opportunities. You want to maximize those. Sometimes we get hung up. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, we need to be, uh, we need to be, realistic about the situation. And the other thing is, is that we also can, can, can turn uh, what initially started as a gospel opportunity into a big-time idol. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. By many times, I've dealt with people who are in a situation where there's someone in their life that they have been sharing with and sharing with and sharing with. And what's happened is, is, it, is what began with all good intentions has turned into this idolatry of their behaving and believing as if, if they don't lead this person to faith in Christ, that they're going to be doomed to hell forever. Oh, no. That's never true. Never. That's never true. No one's salvation is ever dependent upon you or me. It's dependent upon God. You cannot put yourself in the position of God. I don't care who they are. I don't care if it's your spouse. I don't care if it's your child. I don't care if it's your next door neighbor. Just because you have the closest proximity, the minute you start believing that their salvation is dependent upon you, you have just stepped into some place you have no reason being, and it almost guarantees that God's not going to use you in their life because it's become an idol. God can speak through a donkey. Listen, that person that you've shared with over and over and over and over and over, and I'm glad that you have, and I'm glad that you carry a burden for them, but don't overstep your bounds. Always remember that that they might go to sleep one night and God might appear to them in a vision. And they wake up and they're never the same. It didn't have anything to do with you. But you know what? Those seeds that you sowed into their life in faithfulness, they matter to God. Your obedience matters to God. And so there's a we need to understand. Look, look at look at this is how you can understand it. Second Peter chapter 9, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord's not slow or slack to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, you got that? But, you got to read the next verse. The day of the Lord's going to come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and... The works that are done on it will be exposed. You see? So it's not this, it's not this indefinite, infinite patience. We listen, I got news for the, the church, the modern church. God is long suffering, but he's not ever suffering. That's not true. That is not true. Listen, and, it's, and here's the thing. Me and you have nothing to do with that. Nothing. We can't, and we have no idea if it happens, when it happens. It's not for us. We, that we're, we, we don't have the credentials to, to enter that office. You ain't got the keys to that office. You don't know the bounds and limitations of God's patience in anybody's life. Ever. Ever. So we're going to act and minister as if it goes on forever, but with the urgency created by the knowledge that we know that it doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so here's, here's where uh, the rubber mesa road with the church of today. You know I had to get this word in here somewhere. Believing that prosperity is God's approval is pragmatism. It's the deadly sin of pragmatism. You see, here's the thing. They believed that God was good with them because they were experiencing prosperity. That is deadly. That's deadly. If you do that, then you start thinking that when you're not prosperous, that God's displeased with you, which is deadly. Your prosperity or my prosperity has absolutely nothing to do with God's approval of us. Nor does your behavior or your performance. God's approval of you is based on only one thing, the blood of His Son. That's it. Remember? He who knew no sin became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God so that when God looks at you, if you're saved, he doesn't see your works, but he sees the works of the blood of Jesus. That's what he sees, the perfect record of Jesus. Jesus took, took your, my and your record and put it upon himself and imputed his to us. And you know what we've done? We turn on Caleb and all became pragmatists. That's what we do. We got Caleb theology. And we're just drowning in this ridiculous delusion. Oh, when everything falls into place, look at God is so... You know, and here's the thing. I'm... Listen, I'm all for... I want... I'm grateful... You know what? When I have a good day, I'm grateful. Yesterday, I had a really bad day yesterday. But I didn't go home and think, man, I mean, God just must be upset with me today. I mean, it's just so... Why do I have such a bad day? No. God loves me the same yesterday as today. And if, if look, if everything falls into place, I'm glad and I'm grateful and I, and I want to thank God for that. But I don't... Tangle that all up into the, the, the favor of God. I don't somehow create this new paradigm whereas my environment is the indicator as to God's uh, favor or disfavor of me which is utter works-based religion. That's all that is. And total materialistic self-centered idolatry. I'm telling you, it's the poison killing the church. It is the poison killing the church. It's killing the church. I can't, I can't listen. I mean, I can't read a, a, a Christian book on the top 10 bestseller list. I can't. I mean, when I hear somebody preaching on the radio, I, I just turn it off. I can't take it. It's so filled with this ridiculous pragmatism that's so unbiblical. And you know why we drink it up is because we we want it to be so, because it puts us in the driver's seat. It get, we feel like we have control over where the car goes now. Next thing you know, we're going to break out the old bumper sticker that says, oh, "God is my co-pilot." That'd be one. Let's get that out again, because that was a real brainiac moment. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or piece piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or part of a bed. Whew. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So you see the problem. At first, it seems like what in the world when he starts talking about pieces, the scraps, the shreds of flesh that are salvaged by the shepherd to prove to the owner. See, the shepherd didn't own the sheep. They just stewarded the sheep. So when an animal ate a sheep, the shepherd needed to bring some scrap, some ripped up, torn up scrap of that sheep to the owner to prove that it was attacked by an animal so that the owner wouldn't think that they took it for themselves. You got that? And then God says, see, you know what's afoot because God turns that around and says, now when I do it, there's going to be a Corner of a couch or a part of a bed, so you can see that what God's problem is is with their prosperity and their comfort. And then he goes on, and you start saying, "Wait a minute!" Well, so they got summer houses and winter houses and houses of ivory. They've built the. They've moved the the central uh, uh, temple of worship has turned into an idolatrous worship of a of a a, a bull into Bethel. And so the horns of the altar, so if you read in the book of Exodus, the, the corners, the four corners of the altar had these like kind of spikes on it sort of. They called them the horns of the altar. And so multiple times in Scripture where somebody would cling to the horn of the altar and find the, you know, the forgiveness of God or the presence of God or something like that. And so he's saying, I'm cutting those off. I'm chopping them down. I mean, these are harsh words. And here's, here's what they've done. They, they're living in this prosperity while they're, as you're going to find out in the chapters to come, they're ignoring the poverty of the needy and they're, they're driving through the slums paying no with no concept that there are those around them that are hurting and needy and just going to their places of worship and doing all the things that they want to do. And they've made a tragic mistake of forgetting that our God can turn and become our enemy. Don't ever think that your God won't become your enemy. Don't ever think that. Isaiah 63, to this same people, this is spoken to God's people, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So, capital H, he turned himself against them as an enemy. You see that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. See, far more dangerous than falling into the power of Satan is falling out of the power of God. I mean, oh, let me tell you something. I don't want to uh, fall into the power of Satan. I don't, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious of the, the powers and principality and the danger that, that there is there. And even though I understand that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. I understand that concept very well. But you know what? I'm not I'm smart enough to know I'm not going looking for trouble. In other words, here, here's the here's the, the 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 mental picture for you. In Christ, everything in you is utterly and infinitely superior to every single weapon, dominion, and power that Satan has access to in this world. But if you go home and play with a Ouija board, you're a doggone fool. Now, them two things are the same. You, you, You start messing around with witchcraft. So see, now, on one hand, I'm fully aware of what the Bible says about the power that's in me. But I'm smart enough to know that there's a lot of things I'm not fooling with. I'm not going near them. And those two things have to balance you out all the time. Why does the church of our day seem so powerless? How, how could seemingly sane and rational people abandon the very thing, the Word of God, that, you, that we should be most devoted to and united around? Is it because God has lost His power? Or is it because the church has lost His power? You See? Yeah. When the Bible speaks about the power that we have in Christ, that is not a power that you and I have the right to presuppose upon. Here's what I mean. What the Bible means is the power that we have access to we have access to. But it doesn't just mean that all of that power is going to be operational in my life if I'm not accessing it. You understand that? So what I'm saying is is that as we sort of move from chapter 3 back out into the world we need to process all this 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 opportunity that we have this accountability that we have the the way in which god operates in us and around us and through us and his character and nature is revealed in the Old Testament. His exact same character and nature is revealed in the New Testament, and he doesn't change. We change through Christ, but he doesn't change. He doesn't change, and so these houses are going to fall. These places of comfort and. Selfishness are going to come crashing down. And the thing we need to understand, maybe that you know, we can take away from this, this particular chapter of Scripture in this moment in human history that we find ourselves in, is that I believe in my lifetime... I've never seen a time of greater opportunity or greater responsibility. And one of the things that really weighs heavy on my heart is this reality. I kept thinking about these houses and the fact that they're going to fall. And I kept thinking about how when the house of God falls, no house can stand. In other words... The church is the hope of the world. Do you understand that? We are the caretakers of the solution to the problems that the world is facing. Every problem the world has, the gospel is the solution. We're the caretakers of that. We're the ones that have been entrusted with that. And if the house of God falls, no house will stand. No house. And I understand... That the Bible says when God commissions Peter to to be the face of the New Testament church and he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I understand that implication. But let let me make sure we're all clear. That doesn't mean the gates of hell will not prevail against any of you. That's not what that means. Because clearly, listen, churches are closing their doors faster than you can shake a stick at it. I mean, they're dropping like flies. Now, is the church going to go away? No. But there's a lot of people going away, and I'm not going to be counted in that number. See that, that? So what we've got to do is we've got to realize the opportunity and the accountability that we have. And we've got to to realize that this this is a moment that God's ordained for us. If we would just say what we know, we'd have an unbelievable impact in this moment, wouldn't we? If we just said what we know instead of constantly talking about things we got no business talking about.